IBEC, the voice of Irish business. And you are very welcome back to IBEC Voices. In this concluding episode of IBEC's COP26 podcast miniseries, Dr. Neil Walker speaks with Minister for Environment, Climate and Communications, Eamon Ryan, about what was achieved in the UN Climate Summit in Glasgow over the previous two weeks. They discuss what further action is needed to keep the goal of 1.5 degrees alive and how Ireland's recently launched Climate Action Plan can contribute to the EU's efforts to demonstrate international leadership through example. Hello, I'm Neil Walker. In this, the final podcast covering COP26, I'm speaking with the Minister for Environment, Climate and Communications, Eamon Ryan who led the Irish delegation in Glasgow over the past two weeks. Minister, thanks for agreeing to speak with IBEC. Our original intention was to conduct this interview late last week. Understandably, though, you and the rest of the delegation were working around the clock by then to support the EU's efforts to get a workable agreement over the line that would finally nail down the Paris Agreement rulebook. In the first of our podcast series, ahead of the opening ceremony, I outlined some of the sticking points that would need to be overcome to deliver what observers would consider a successful conference. Despite the preceding G20 declaration on phasing out international financing of coal-fired generation, fossil fuel burning did not appear to be going away anytime soon in major Asian economies. Indeed, some of the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters had yet to commit to a long-term national trajectory towards net zero emissions by mid-century as envisaged in the Paris Agreement. And among those signalling their intention to do so, there was a reluctance to define a corresponding emissions trajectory out to 2030. And of course, there were unresolved issues relating to international funding commitments, whether for mitigation or adaptation projects, not to mention compensation for loss and damage arising from historic emissions. In the two previous COPs I've attended, the first week was largely devoted to technical discussions with political leaders only joining later to help seal the deal. This time it was the other way round, with leaders' speeches dominating the first two days. There were some early warning signs, particularly from the BRIC countries, and this was reflected in high drama during the closing minutes with a difficult compromise to keep India and China on board. Alok Sharma was apologetic about that, although the retention of an explicit acknowledgement of the need to at least reduce global coal dependence, the unspoken elephant in the room at all previous COPs, could be seen as a step forward, if not a breakthrough. Minister, I would invite you to give us your thoughts on what progress was made over the past two weeks in Glasgow, and what it means for the viability of the 1.5 degree goal, and what further action the EU can take internationally ahead of COP27 taking place in Egypt next year. Neil, thank you very much. I'm very glad to join you here and to reflect, as you say, on COP26, the 26th time that the meeting of the Conference of the Parties on the United Nations Framework on Climate Change. And I think somewhat even just setting out that wording of what COP means and what UNFCCC means uh, is important because 
it's important to understand, I suppose, what was really happening. Um, and I rather further one, I suppose, the whole re- the relationship with the Paris Climate Agreement, which is an outcome of the, some of those previous processes. Um, and I think um, what the outcome here is a significant development in the deepening and strengthening of the Paris Agreement. The Paris Agreement, it was a 30-page legal text to try and get a structure within which every country in the world would, would collectively work towards this target of keeping global temperature, well, getting them below 2 degrees, but striving to keep it below 1.5 degrees, average global increase. And even since Paris was agreed back in 2015, the urgency of that target has become increasingly clear. The science ever more worrying. I remember this line that stuck out to me during the week was the Secretary General of the United Nations, Mr. Guterres, at a meeting with the European Union Coordination Group saying, when you're close to the abyss, which is what we are, every step you take matters. So that urgency of meeting the target um, is the centre of everything, the centre of the delivering the Paris Climate Agreement. And that's something that's delivered by this structure, where 200 con- 197 countries meet together as a conference of the parties. Um, a few things. Firstly, it was interesting in those closing sessions, and as you say, they were very dramatic, tense, uh, gut-wrenching is the word I use coming out of it, because it had a sting in the tail. But... First, it was very interesting that all 197 countries in their contributions, no one was disagreeing with the ambition about the urgency of the 1.5 degrees. And maybe some were more um, ambitious than others in what you actually do about that, but no one was disagreeing with the target. And I think that was significant. Secondly, in the two weeks, there had been very significant developments and there was final agreement on a lot of the structures that, as I said, strengthened that Paris Climate Agreement, how do you meet this target? So there was very significant developments in my mind in, what, in closing the rule book. You know, how do you hold country, countries to account in meeting that target? How do you report? Um, how do you trade carbon credits in a way that doesn't undermine that agreement? And that was agreed in Glasgow with finally, and it's been out there for years, what they call Article 6, the kind of uh, carbon markets aspect of it. Also, there was very significant development on the financing, the global financing of this transition. And I thought significant development, and I was very honoured, I was was asked by the European Union to represent the Union in the climate finance strands of negotiations. And in that, I think, Again, further progress, not just in signing off on how we will provide 100 billion euros finance next year and each of the next four years, but also how we start setting a longer term finance goal. And also, and I think very significantly, and, and we were involved in this, Ireland and Italy and a few other countries were pushing the inclusion of reform of the multilateral development banks and other development banks, the World Bank, the IMF, and also the use of what's called special drawing rights to help finance climate resilience, climate adaptation. And and that, I think, was all significant and progressive. And lastly, a lot of that finance and the whole issue, a biggest issue in COP is around how we provide finance for climate justice, for um, how we provide finance for adaptation. We know climate change is coming now. We have to support particularly poorer countries in how they adapt to climate change. 
And last but not least, how do we start providing finance for what's called loss and damage? The loss and damage that we, is already happening and we know is going to occur. And there wasn't so much a clear develop, a final um, uh, well, definitive statement in that area, but there was significant progress in, in how we will address it. So if I look at, at that, and all these arrangements um, in terms of how you report, what's the transparency, how you finance, how you trade, how you provide climate adaptation finance, and um, all of those that there, there was real progress. And a lot of those were in the detailed text that, as I said, is legal text that adds to the Paris Climate Agreement. So as well as that, then, those kind of below-the-line legal text, there was also what they call a cover text, which is the overarching political direction. And that had, again, a lot of very good uh, language um, around the need to restore nature at the same time as we address climate change, um, the need to recognise climate justice in, in what we do, and also for the first time, the recognition that it, fossil fuels is the centre of the problem and the switch off and the switch away and the ending of our use of fossil fuels has to be part of how we meet this climate target. Um, and as I said, that's where the sting in the tail, because at the very last minute, and it was it was quite dramatic and quite heated. I, I was Ireland sits right beside China, behind China in the in the in the room. So we we were kind of first-hand seats, as it were, watching the various parties, um, US, China, Europe, uh, and the presidency. Um, agreeing a last-minute compromise that China and India insisted on, where we went from the wording phase out of coal, unabated coal, to phase down. Now, what exactly that means, and but is not not clear. But it was it was it took a real it kind of took a knock off the proceedings because it sent out the wrong message and was signed that while country, I mean, China and India are going to be the countries that probably suffer almost most in, in, in climate. I remember seeing a World Bank study a number of years ago showing a four-degree world and the centre of India and that world is not habitable. So it's not as if India doesn't have a problem with climate change. Same with China, as the great glaciers contract and their water system changes uh, and their low-lying areas are also subject to very strong heat and flooding. Like China's is very vulnerable. So it was that was really hard. Um, but the decision that had to be made in the end, and the European Union, as well as the presidency, as well as others, made the call that we had to hold on to the gains. We had to hold on to the progress that had been made and accept a compromise on that wording in the political text, re recognizing that the real advance in Glasgow was in the legal text, which, which we now have to deliver on. And I suppose the last thing I'd say in terms of does it keep 1.5 alive? It's very close. It's not certain. We're, it's incredible challenge. I mean, incredible beyond compare challenge, the scale of change and the speed of change. Um, one last commitment in it was calling on countries to come back to review their nationally declared contributions, their NDCs, and um, that to, to do that next year in advance of the 27th meeting of the parties in Egypt. And that's a very short timeline, but I think uh, that will be the moment where we know whether, you know, whether countries are serious. Um, in that regard, Ireland, I suppose, with our programme for government commitment as part of an EU commitment for a 55 package, 
We are, I think, in line with the Paris Agreement by aiming to have emissions this decade and go net zero in 2050. So uh, our task is, is, is to deliver now. And the last thing I'd say, maybe this is for the business community, um, to all that, what I mentioned there about the financial system changing to make sure that their flows of finance complements the climate target. I think that's now clearly understood within the finance system. And I think we will see both in the international banking system, but also domestically. And um, if you're not aiming to decarbonize your business in the next 10 years, you won't be in business in 10 years time. I think is that because I think there is, even with all those problems with China and India, there is a momentum, there is an acceleration of the investment in the alternative technologies, the understanding that this is the direction we're going. And I think um, that was also one of the things coming out of, of Glasgow, that understanding that, that that business increasingly realizes that this is the direction. So for Ireland, we have a huge challenge meeting our targets. But as I said, if, if, if businesses are not seeing that as core to their strategic plans, then, then they'd be making a very, in my mind, a very unwise uh, strategic decision. Yeah, thanks. I would agree with you. And I, I've seen just in the last two years or so a huge level of interest and commitment to what's known as the ESG agenda and, and particularly to the circular economy. We're getting so much interaction with our members on that. I suspect, uh, although maybe wrong, that it was no coincidence that the launch of Ireland's revised climate action plan coincided with the first week of the COP. As we said in our press release, our members view it as a timely signal of Ireland's willingness to meet its commitments under the European Green Deal and the emerging Fit for 55 legislative package. However, some elements of the EU's proposed package have raised a few eyebrows in the Irish business community, including commission proposals to remove transport and heating emissions from the effort sharing sector, moving them into a new EU-wide trading scheme, and also to establish a carbon border adjustment mechanism. I was just wondering whether you'd care to comment on, on these or other aspects of the package. Well, firstly, um, I mean, I was glad that we were able to publish our climate action plan in advance of COP. Um, I think it was important we went with the real message that Ireland was willing to step up. I mean, the timing wasn't exactly managed in that way. We, I was hoping to have it slightly earlier in October, but for a variety of reasons, we were delayed. But but it, it is the climate action plan very much is part of a series of of uh, developments. The I suppose the strengthening of our climate act, and we have a very strong climate act now, which is really going to hold the public service to account in, in, and ministers to account in the changes we need to make. But also the national development plan review, which was clearly um, climate focused. Uh, the budget itself and, and the uh, housing for all strategy, again, very much influenced by climate. But in the budget, um, that provision we have of now automatically increasing our carbon tax every year by some seven euros a ton, uh, I think it's starting to really work. It, um, the ability of uh, the hypothecation and effect of 30% of the funding to social welfare con uh, measures to protect people from fuel poverty, the 55% going to uh, retrofitting of people homes to help them, uh, and this re remainder going to small farmers. I think that return of the revenue from climate tax 
to help us make this transition and help her make it a just transition is a really effective, I mean, it was very interesting. A lot of other ministers with real interest in what we're doing and, uh, and looking to do something similar. In that context, well, I mean, I'm very supportive of the 55 package. I think the European Commission has done a very good job. The council are, are kind of not in a bad place when it comes to climate change. In, in Glasgow, we were fairly united. And um, but the one thing I've been saying in the in the uh, discussions of it is that that proposal from the Commission, supported by companies like con- con- countries like Germany and a few other countries. To, to extend the ETM emissions trading scheme into transport and heating has the unintended consequence for us of completely messing up our plans because we're expecting to raise over 9 billion in, in this mechanism and to use that to fund particularly the retrofitting. So um, if we don't have that revenue source and, and, and the commission's proposal where you take the revenue, you put it into a European social fund, it would be probably go more to the east than the west. Uh, I mean, I can understand where they're coming from, but from an Irish perspective, they know that we think it would be a real mess. So, so I, I, my political antenna tells me that they may not have the, the numbers to get that measure through. Other countries have similar concerns about it. So, and I think for the Euro- union, it's high risk because they're putting it's putting the union in what's one of the most sensitive issues. You know how you how you raise tax locally and spend it is that's more. Uh, uh, I mean, it's not easy for national governments. We've seen the yellow vest movement in, in France and so on. So a lot of people are very nervous about this. But but the Commission trying to do it and our European doing it as a collective, I think, would be even more difficult. So I, I'm hoping that won't de- develop. The rest of the 55 package, by and large, we're very supportive of. You have to see the details. Uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, I think all that will be helped and the aviation uh, measures and all those others. I think that will be helped by Glasgow because, as I said, with the rule book now on cross-border trading and mechanisms around carbon, that will help. That And the reporting mechanisms and the transparency arrangements that we've agreed, I think all of that will help sort of cross-border mechanisms and we do need them. So we'll be supportive of that and um, it'll take about a year, year and a half for all the legislation to be agreed, but I don't see anything stopping us now. And if anything, I think we have to accelerate coming out of Glasgow because countries are going to have to give more updated NDCs. And uh, and I think that will be helped by, by uh, our, our, that's going to require speed. So so we're not in a bad place in Europe. Um, there are that there, there is that underlying problem in the in the commission proposal, but if we can address that, I think we'll agree the 50-55 process fairly quickly. Thank you very much indeed.